I wonder if you have ever thought about what it would look like to be remembered after your own death. What would it look like to be remembered, people remembering you, after your own death? Maybe some of you have thought about where you want to be buried, what kind of scenario that would be, maybe even your funeral, or maybe some of you have even gone as dark as wondering what would be placed on your tombstone. Maybe you've requested it. Maybe some of you have already purchased it, but you, you want it listed of what you could be remembered for. I'd really hate, and I bet you would also join me in hating, a reality of what would be said of you on a tombstone with the words, he began well, dot, dot, dot. And then there's a date. I didn't expect you to laugh. I expect you to be like, wow, that'd be really sad. Stop laughing, it's sad. Can you imagine being remembered for how you started, not how you finished? The, the book of Second Peter and Peter Zane, this apostle, wants to give you great courage and a lot of pushing from behind so that you would finish well in this race of life. So that he who began a good work in you, you would finish well by pursuing him, even in the entrapments of the world, even in the false teaching of teachers around you, even when it feels like the world is in utter chaos. How can I endure to the end? He was saying, Christian, focus on these things so that you will endure, so that it would be said of you. He fought the fight. He finished the race. And he won the prize. Starting well is good. I don't know if you've ever raced, but there's that nanosecond of like, I'm going to beat this person because I started so well. Starting well is really good. But finishing well, scripturally, is vital. Finishing well is vital. And so Peter gives us a very direct, very sobering portrait of what, what happens to those who, by all appearances at least, start well but do not endure to the end. And he gives us glimpses of that, especially in chapter 2 of Second of Peter. Peter's first chapter focused on the positive teaching about growth in godliness and Christian perseverance, making your way to the end mightily in your work. But chapter 2 focuses on the challenges and threats that inhibit this growth. It starts out by saying false teachers, just like false prophets have come in, and then in this passage this morning, our passage for today, Peter is continuing with this expose of what false teachers look like. 22 blistering verses of sustained scolding and critique of what false teachers do and what they look like so that you and I can be aware. And at some point, they had, these men had made a profession of faith in Christ. They were seen as church members. They were teaching in the house of the Lord. Yet, even though they claimed him as a master, they later are seen as denying him altogether. But Peter isn't just warning about destructive, heretical instruction. He is clear on that. When people teach false things, the church should take action against it. But he's not just talking about heretical instruction. He's also talking about apostasy in particular. An apostate person or someone who has gone the way of apostasy. Now, apostasy is when someone who was seen as a Christian and even thought themselves to be a Christian, have proved or showcased that they are not a Christian by their life as it unfolds. They might have professed faith. We might have asked them to join us in membership, but then by their own very walk, they show themselves to, us never, to have never been a Christian at all. And that's the big idea of this passage. 
is to be able to look at that and understand how horrifying and awful that reality really is. And that's the big idea. Consider it under two major movements. So if you grabbed a bulletin with an outline on the back side, there are two points here. But as you may notice, each point has three points. So there are eight points to this message this morning, but two, two major movements. The first major movement is the end point of, or the ending of verse 10 all the way through verse 19, where you kind of see a picture of apostasy, what apostasy looks like. And then the second one, verses 20 through 22, where Peter draws some conclusions, sounding an alarm of apostasy. He wants us to really see and feel the urgency of the danger ourselves. You could see this like a shot across the bow so that we might understand what is haunting and horrifying. So the first thing I want you to see in the big picture scheme is I want you to see what apostasy looks like. What does apostasy look like in the church? Peter highlights two things, essentially. He's focused on the attitude of false teachers and then the behavior of false teachers. Their attitude and their behavior. But the, the first thing, their attitude, you can sum it up by saying that they are arrogant and ignorant. They're arrogant and ignorant. They are arrogant and ignorant, and he illustrates their arrogance by drawing a contrast and their ignorance by drawing a comparison. You can see this contrast in verses 10 and 11. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas, a contrast, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now, Peter says that false teachers are bold and willful. They're not cowardly. They're not wimpy. They're deliberate. He says that they're arrogant. The epitome of their arrogance is the lack of trembling as they blaspheme the glorious ones. There's a parallel here between 2 Peter and Jude, uh, verses 8 through 10, that suggests these glorious ones here are demons and angels. So Peter is saying that not even the angels dare pronounce judgment against demonic powers, but leave all judgment to God. These false teachers are so carefree and so unconcerned about doing that that they even blaspheme these horrifying things even as they teach. Maybe they didn't think they existed. You know how a lot of people don't think that evil exists or the devil is real or demons aren't around. They just, they just don't think it exists. Maybe, they Maybe that was the case. But what we know what they do confess is they do deny the coming of Christ. And this is where they actually, you could say, dance until the night never ends because if the Lord is not coming to judge, if Christ is not coming back to rescue his people and judge evil altogether, if that's not going to happen, then you and I can eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow it'll just be yet another party. We can do whatever we want. You can see how this teaching would infect a church and infect other Christians where a life of holiness is no longer pursued. A life of righteousness is just put away to the wayside because these people are teaching it. But regardless, these false teachers mock the power of the devil and his demons, opening themselves up to further deception from the father of lies. Now, a takeaway for us. If we neglect Satan's power, if we see him as not there, you cannot discern it or be on guard against his influence. If we don't consider how evil actual evil is, then in many ways we never guard ourselves from its influence. If you think everyone has your best interests in mind, you would never lock your door. You would never clench your purse. You would never have a safe in your house. Because 
Who would do that? In the same way, if you and I see Satan as just non-existent, then we are never going to be on guard of his influence on our life. Even today, a, a dismissive attitude towards Satan and his power can actually lead to spiritual danger where the devil prowls about looking for those whom he may devour, and he finds it easiest to devour those who are unsuspecting or those who deny the reality of his work in the world. And so we see a couple of things here from, from these men. And the first one is they look arrogant. The contrast here between the angels and the false teachers is really very clear. They're arrogant. Now, you and I live in a time where hetero Doxy, opposite of orthodoxy, heterodoxy is often acclaimed as heroic, bucking the trend of Christianity as seen as something that's cool. Our church is different than the 2,000-year history of other churches. We do things cool and a little bit different that's seen as heroic. Think about theological issues that creep in like this and overtake like this. Theological issues like open theism, where God changes according to our desire. Or the instruction of transgenderism, where God messes up when he makes people in his own image. Or homosexuality, feminism, mysticism, macroevolution, and even anti-modesty. You, you teach these things that are, that are teaching against the Bible. And if you teach on any of those things against the Bible, in many ways you're exalted as a hero in our world. You're seen as a hero amongst those who deny the instruction of God through his own revealed word and truth, rejecting the ancient convictions received by God's people from the scriptures about who God is, about the authority and the trustworthiness of the Bible, about those who uh, claim to have seen Christ and obey his word and what he has done and about what it means to be male and female made in the image of God, about the only way of salvation through faith in Christ alone, about what it means to walk in purity and piety before the Lord. People who reject these basic convictions that have been received by God's people from the very beginning are seen today as free thinkers, independent minds in today's culture. And what Peter is saying is whatever the theological issue that seems to be invented actually shows the absolute arrogance of the one teaching that or holding to it all together. And it was the same in the apostles' time too, where these false teachers sounded the alarm and they, they show that these men who thought they were sophisticated and clever and the ears of those who first heard him, he says they're apostate. They never knew. Peter sees right through them. He calls their rejection of the orthodox faith once delivered to the saints for what it really is. It is arrogant, bold, and willful. They reject the truth. Uh, I, I worked a job one time where we had to at least look like we knew what we were doing. I imagine none of you have ever been in a situation like that before. You at least looked, you needed to look like you actually knew what you were doing. And one person who was over me gave me advice. He said, hey, if, if it's like a last minute thing and you don't know what to do and you're about to run into a wall, you confidently run into that wall. This is super arrogant, isn't it? It's really foolish. It's really moronic. And these men are bold and willfully rejecting truth. So, friend, be cautious about theological and doctrinal innovation. It is not wisdom, it is arrogance. Peter says that those who refuse to learn from the fathers of the faith, from the scriptures from the Lord, they do this not by insight, 
but by soul-destroying heretical approaches that prize theological innovation over theological fidelity. So the arrogance of these apostates is illustrated by this contrast with the angels in verse 10 and 11. But they're not only uh, arrogant, they're also, secondly, or letter B, they're also ignorant. Not only arrogant, but also ignorant. Notice how Peter goes to the opposite end of the spectrum to draw this comparison. While, while the arrogance of the false teachers offers a striking contrast with the angels, the ignorance of the false teachers provides a very close comparison. Uh, it says there that they act like animals. Look at verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now, just that phrase on an aside, that that feast with you. What that's talking about is participating in the Lord's Supper, dining together. Keeping the context here, these are fellow church members who are sharing a table with you, who are sharing a VBS classroom with your kid, who are looking around in the daytime, denying Christ altogether. Now, it's ironic because they don't even know that the darkness is coming for them. But you see what they act like. They act like crazy animals. He says they're acting irrationally, like animals of instinct, driven along by animal passions. Their blasphemous airs flow ultimately from a deep-seated ignorance in their own lives. And, and that ignorance, that fundamental rejection of proper spirit-enlightened, scripturally-informed rationality leads not only to cultural amnesia and moral madness, but also far more chilling, Peter says, because they're irrational animals, they're also born to be caught and destroyed. They'll also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. Now, here's what he's saying to you. If you embrace the ignorance of life on your own terms, it may sound heroic and it may sound wise and way way ahead of our time. Peter says it's irrational. And even if you follow false teachers and false teaching because it's the new cool thing, or it sounds really great and really wise. It sounds a lot like the world could really buy into this. He is saying, you're acting like an animal. One who was created to be slaughtered. Like a, maybe a literal cow or a pig. For those of you who are farmers, I don't know anything about it, or ranchers, why do you, why do you buy more cows? So that you can eventually slaughter them. And he's saying, this is what it looks like. So Christians, though the world may lionize you in this false thinking, Peter says you are debasing yourself, dehumanizing yourself like irrational animals. It, it really matters, friends, think of this, it really matters that you, Christian, think, and it really matters how you think, and it really matters what you think. It is important for those who follow the Lord to continually seek the Lord for heavenly wisdom and revealed knowledge. That's why Christians thought it was wise hundreds of years ago to find all these children around the cities and to teach them to read the Bible in what we now call Sunday school. You know, Sunday school was invented to teach children how to read 
so that we could put words in front of them from the Lord so that they would hear and understand even at a young age. It's why Christians want their children to think and know and grow. And it's why, why you even bless people around you by buying me books and buying me different things. Or you might bless someone else by, hey, I read this book of Second Peter. Maybe you and I can read it together and think about it together. Christians are not called to ever be thoughtless. Yes, we're to be spirit-led. Yes, we're to be caught up in the ways of the Lord. Our affections are to be changed from the inside out. But he also gave us a brain to have confidence in him. So Christians, this is important even for our day. We are not to be primarily feelers in our faith. We do not follow Jesus because he offers a more satisfactory path to maintaining emotional equilibrium or achieving or maintaining an upbeat demeanor in life or to discover the power of positivity. No, no, Christians are thinkers and knowers. And what we know of the truth of Christ then inflames and informs and disciplines and regulates how we feel. And so Peter highlights their ignorance by comparing them with the animals. We also see within this of what apostasy looks like is it, is it also looks like immoral and manipulative living. It looks arrogant, looks ignorant, and it looks like immoral and manipulative living. There's always a connection between ethics and error. There's always a connection between ethics and error. There's always a connection also between theological convictions and your morality. And in this case, Peter says arrogance and ignorance goes hand in hand with immorality and manipulation. I doubt many of us, and I think this is wrong, I hope, uh, let me be positive, I hope a lot of us would look at a theology class or the book of Romans or the book of Deuteronomy and say, that can help me live a righteous life. Very often we see divides in the church of, here's the theology class and here's the Christian living class. You know, you go to a bookstore, you go, I want to have a great 2024 year. Are you going to go to Christian living or are you going to go to the doctrine of God? And this always plays itself out. I talked about earlier or earlier in the passage, earlier up in the, the top of 2 Peter chapter 2, where it talks about their salacious way of living comes from their internal misunderstanding of who God is. And we see this all the time. People in their sin show what they really believe about God, show what they really know about him and his character. Look at verse 13. Their arrogance and ignorance goes hand in hand with their immorality. Verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They misunderstand the daytime, don't they? They misunderstand what the nighttime coming means. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. What this means is a ravenous sexual appetite. They have eyes full of adultery. Verse 14, they entice unsteady souls. That word entice there, they entice unsteady souls. They're not looking for the strong ones. They're looking for the weak sheep and bring them in. Verse 18, they even entice others by sensual passions of the flesh. Verse 18, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. In other words, they are preying upon those who are new in the Christian faith or light in the Christian faith and enticing them into moral and theological sin. 
Here you see the rejection of Christian conviction and Christian morality. So very often, moral infidelity precedes the change from doctrinal fidelity. You can hear it justified. You want your sin accommodated, but that goes against your Christian faith and your Christian morals. I want to sleep with my girlfriend. I want to live a gay lifestyle. I want to pursue an affair. I want to steal and not be caught, but so long as your conscience conscience is informed by your convictions, you then adjust your convictions to make room for your sinful conscience. You want to sleep with that girl or that guy, and you say, well, you know, God's actually not that judgmental. My sins were dealt with on the cross. You don't understand the cross at all. Peter brings all this together with an illustration in verse 15, with a character from the Old Testament called Balaam. Look at verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Now, you should remember the story of Balaam from Numbers 22. Balaam was a pagan prophet who was hired by Balak. So Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel. He was hired to, curse, to put a curse over Israel. But the Lord prevented Balaam from doing this. So Balak didn't get his way. Balaam didn't do what he was asked to do. The Lord prevented him from doing this. And every time he tried to curse Israel, instead he prophesied, not by his own doing, but by the Lord's providential work in his life, he actually prophesied a blessing on Israel. This leader meant it for bad. And what did God do? Whatever God wanted to do. The original tactic, though, frustrated Balaam, this preacher. And so he tried another approach. He couldn't get his way with speaking, so he tried another way in. Balaam led Israel into idolatry and adultery. That's how he got in. That's how he spoke a curse on these people, is he lured them into idolatry and adultery. Having failed by direct means, he tried indirect ones. And since he could not alter God's view of Israel, he tried to change Israel's view of God. And so Peter builds off this, using this illustration, he builds off this by parallel to the apostate false teachers plaguing the churches in his day. It's not just by their words, but it's also by their actions. So remember how it went for Balaam. Uh, what is the text saying next in verse 16? Balaam was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke the human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So Peter is warning this church to these apostates uh, is warning them of something that is actually very deadly serious. You know, we look at this and we go, okay, if, if everyone's just sleeping with who they're sleeping with, pretty good. You know, we've looked at the curriculum of the classrooms. It's pretty good, doing well. But he's saying, no, no, it is so serious. Look at verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. They're waterless springs, and they are mist driven by the storm. Waterless springs cannot quench your thirst. You may go to the well, but there's no water there for you to fill you up, and that's the point here. These are like mists driven by a storm, where false teachers quickly obscure the clarity of your spiritual vision, and all of a sudden they leave you in a fog. Verse 19 says they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, bringing other people in, in on the trick. And that's the narrative we often hear, a promise of freedom, don't be too strict. Don't be so narrow. Don't be so legalistic or exclusionary or going all the way back to the garden. Did God really say that? Isn't he kind of withholding something from you? 
Isn't he tying you down? Doesn't he want you to have more freedom? A terrible picture of hell this text has is utter darkness. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. That's what is on the chopping block for these false teachers. The gloom of utter darkness. They sound enlightened, but there is no light in their future. They are heralded, heralded as leading lights, but their end is gloom of utter darkness. And Peter says, don't follow them. Don't follow them, Christian. This is where they lead. Go onward in your faith. Pursue the Lord in your faith. There are false teachers in your midst. Do not follow them. Look at where they're going. And don't let them lead you there. It doesn't bring freedom. And Peter here gives us a very strong, solemn account of what apostasy looks like. An anatomy of apostasy. So we see him giving us a picture of what apostates look like. What apostasy appears like. But then uh, secondly, I want you to see in verses 20 through 22, I want you to hear the alarm of apostasy. Why, it's so, why, why the siren is so loud and almost unending for Christians. In many ways, apostasy sounds like a better way, but it's actually way worse. It sounds like a better way, but it's actually way worse. Very quickly, we need to hear the alarm of sounding in these verses. Uh, so let me simply highlight three things. He tells us here, first of all, verse 20, it's clear that there is a kind of knowledge of Jesus Christ you can have that is sufficient to deliver you from what Peter calls the defilements of the world. My point in saying that is, Christian, you can actually trust. You can find what God has given you in his revealed word as sufficient for you to live so that you can fight off evil and evil teachers. Peter is talking about false teachers here, remember, who have denied the master who bought them. They're not truly Christians. And he's saying, yes, they heard the gospel. Yes, they found it compelling at some point. It swayed their emotions. Their consciences were stirred. They were drawn to the joy and the integrity that they saw in the lives of true believers. They were swept up in what it looked like for everyone to find them to be a genuine converted person. And they underwent some kind of moral reformation in their lives where they then joined a church. They seemed to be growing. At least they appeared only to have escaped and found themselves in the defilements of the world. And what he's saying is Christian... That does not have to be you if you follow what my word says. You could look at that and go, is, can this happen to me? That's really terrible. I don't want it to happen to me. And he's saying, no, those who are truly in the faith, those who keep their eyes on the Savior will never go this way. Do not be satisfied with a few stirring emotions, a brief sense of spiritual interest. Don't say to yourselves like the Pharisees in Jesus' parable, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other people. I'm religious. I go to church. I've escaped the defilements of the world. That is not Christianity, but rather it is the continual life of faith and repentance and going back to the water that quenches all of your thirst. In many ways, this is, this is in part one of the joyful things that you and I do when we participate in the Lord's Supper. And I think we should participate in the Lord's Supper every single week. And part of that is because I'm a needy person. Not part of that, because I think it's commanded. But also because I'm a needy person. I need the regular rhythm of gathering with people who don't look like me, who aren't like me, but have been redeemed just like me. And we are built up in the faith through things like singing and hearing the word and praying. And then I go to a table that shows me the crucified son and the blood that was for me. And I'm also warned before I go to the table, if you're in unrepentant sin, don't take this, sit in your seat, confess your sin, 
and then take this joyfully. I need that regular reminder. I'm sure you do too. We often think that our friends will do this, or maybe that a cool daily devotional will help us do this. God has given us, friend, what we need to keep our eyes on him. So he's saying, don't follow these people. And also, by not following these people, follow the Lord. So it sounds way better to follow them, but it's way worse. It also sounds like a fuller life, but it's actually very empty. You hear and respond, maybe to the gospel, albeit superficially, and then you, like false teachers, repudiate Christ and turn your back on him. Your condition and your condemnation will be worse, he says, than if you had never heard the gospel at all. Look at verses 20 and 21. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn their back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, not all sins are equal. Not all sins are equal, some by their own nature and some by their severe repetitions and uh, aggravations or more heinous than others. Knowing the gospel, hearing the gospel, and living as if it were not true, knowing that Jesus obeyed and bled and died for the salvation of sinners like you and me while turning your back on him and his way is even worse than if you had never heard it at all. It would be better for you to have never heard it of the way of righteousness than to have never heard it, understand it, walked on your own way instead, hear the waning, hear it. I hope you hear the alarm that is sounding here. It sounds like a fuller life to follow the ways of the world, but it's actually very empty. It's a, it's a classroom of continual fullness and trying to understand the philosophies and the ways of the world, while in reality, you, it has been given to you. It also sounds, lastly, it also sounds very different, but in reality, it's an unchanged life. Apostasy sounds very different, but it's actually unchanged altogether. It just has like a lot of color on something that is colorless. And he gives the illustration in a couple ways. Peter says apostasy like this reveals one true character in the end. We've looked to everyone like the real thing for a while, like a true Christian, but then when we turn our backs from the way of Christ and repudiate his grace and embrace others' lies, we are suddenly shown to be what we really are and what we've always been. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, he gives this heightened illustration. What the true proverb says has been happened to them. The dog returned to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is what dogs do. This is what pigs do. They return to their vomit. They go back after washing for a time to wade in the muck. And he's saying that they haven't changed. He's saying there were, their change, at least to our own eyes, or maybe to their own eyes, were superficial and temporary, but their heart hadn't changed. You can wash a pig, you can perfume a pig, but it's still a pig. You can clean up your behavior, you can learn to watch your tongue, you can even be fluent in a particular vocabulary of Christianese. You might even say things like, Lord willing and God willing a lot, or if the Lord tarries, or I'll see you on Sunday, yet you're unchanged. You can maintain the highest standards of morality and be consistent in church and in the outward worship of God every Lord's day, but unless, what the scripture says, unless you've been born again, 
It's like you're washing yourself but haven't changed yourself at all. It does not change the nature. So you must, what this scripture is calling out for, you must, to have confidence in the Lord, you must be born again. Friend, you must be born again to have any sense of hope and trust and that the end, as darkness will come, it is not coming for you. Trust in the Lord is looking at the future and going, I have encouragement and joy in the midst of whatever is coming next because of what was done to my Savior 2,000 years ago. You know, it often seems like a, like a cute and humble thing to say to someone if they say, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And you might say, well, I really hope so. That sounds humble, but what the scriptures have called us to is a life of confidence. Yes, I will meet my maker, and it will be awesome and good because of what was done for the son, or what was done to the son on my behalf. I believe in what the scriptures say about Jesus. I believe in what the scriptures say if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, then you will be saved. I believe that when the warrior on a horse at the very end of Revelation comes and slays the dragon, I'm not the dragon, and I can't wait to see it. Christians are called to be confident in their lives because of what has been given to them. We're called to be confident because we call out to the Lord to change us from the inside out. We're called to be confident in the Lord because you and I are different. The, the language that I used in the pastoral prayer earlier, that thanking the Lord for a particular man because God made him no longer a having nature of sin, but one that was given salvation. That's what all of our testimonies are. You might not look at a child and go, you are a wicked seven-year-old. But in their sin, that's what it is. Or you look at a redeemed seven-year-old and you go, you are not your own, but you were bought with the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is far more than a moral teacher. Christianity is far more than just a better way to live. He's interested in more than escaping the defilements of your world with your life. He's more than just an object of something that you worship. Peter calls him our Lord and Savior. Before you can ever be clean, before your worship can ever be acceptable to him, he must be your redeemer, your rescuer. He must be your Lord. He must be your Savior. And he must set you free. Friends, at the end of the day, this, I, I would imagine some of you, maybe you brought a friend and then I read this text and you're going, why is it always the weird text when I bring my friend to church that day? What are we talking about? Dogs and pigs and washing things and what is going on here? He is saying that apostasy in the church is one of the most dangerous things we can ever see in life and we must take action on it. I gave the illustration last week. You can go by and listen to that. What do we do with apostate teachers in the church? What do we do with people who teach heretical things? And he's saying, it's here. It's in your midst. And in the midst of uh, what seems like a world that is going away, keep your eye on the prize. Deal with them as you should, but keep your eye on the prize. Do not be discouraged at the life that is in front of you. I'd imagine some of you really want the Lord to return this day because you're tired of all the unrighteousness and evil and awfulness that has happened. You want to be where the Lord is. And that is good because of the certainty that we have that he is coming again. We're going to sing it in just a moment, but one of my favorite hymns, 
a 500-year-old hymn written by Martin Luther. It's called A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. And, and the character here in this song, I would imagine, is something that you and I can feel even in our very bones because it, it feels like I trust in the Lord, but I am attacked constantly from the outside by evil and the evil one. But listen to his words. We'll sing it, but listen to it. A bulwark, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. That means the devil does seek to do terrible things. His craft and his power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing, Jesus. Dost ask who that might be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age, to age, from age to age the same, he must win the battle. And here's what really ramps up in the soul of man. And though this will, world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure one little word shall fail him. One little word shall fail him. What is that word? Fourth verse. That's why you sing all the verses of every hymn in the hymnal. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let good and kindreds go. This mortal life all the so. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The ambition of Peter to us this day is to acknowledge the reality and the harshness of life. It comes through circumstances that are miserable. It also comes through false teachers that act like false prophets. But Christian, do not fear because it is God's truth that will lead us home. Let's pray.